0: also underestimating the influence of these systems of power have on our very lives the fact that i had like an opioid dependency for a while was because of the salt tax like the fact that that whole connection right mm-hmm, right yeah. and the historical amnesia that caused yeah. that disconnect between like oh these systems of power have impacted me yes. in this way that i could never have imagined yes
1: yeah 100 percent. i am glad it's registering because i know this is a really dense topic that can take a while to like chew on but yeah I, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there with like, how would an ancient salt tax create a cascade of events that then leads to the various issues around like not only opioids, but amphetamines, I mean, even like cannabis, all, all drugs that are banned or whatnot. Suppressed in some way.
2: Yeah. I'm just so going to go ahead and mark that audio wise as a great <laughs> intro <laughs> 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 because okay. that was that was a great summary of what we've talked about, I think. Hello, and thank you for listening to the TripSitter podcast. Just like a trip sitter watching over your psychedelic experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your journey. Join us as we demystify these substances, the science behind them, and the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Uh, Hi, I'm James, and I'm a writer with TripSitter. Hi, I'm Rowan. I'm a writer with TripSitter. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor-in-chief of TripSitter.
0: I'm Vince, and I am a writer
1: and i i don't know actually i didn't shit um
3: nowhere of
0: so many things nowhere yeah. of all the
1: things <laughs> i don't know do you want me i don't know i can do that again if you want i didn't i don't know i mean i guess i'm a writer no, i, used to I think that's perfect founder.
2: actually yeah. Okay. Yeah. you know like i said man i think you're doing something no one else is doing so you don't have a title <laughs> <Yeah. Agreed? laughs> a drug historian maybe.
3: yeah yeah there we go i
2: like
1: that <clears throat> well i don't know if it's a job title per se but i think the way i described my work is um it is essentially epistemology applied to drugs and specifically political epistemology and what epistemology is is the study of knowledge how it is created how it is qualified how it is shared and then political epistemology is specifically the study of how epistemology affects and is affected by political processes so that would include laws police like power relations class relations so taken all together what my work really focuses on is how do political processes affect the bodies of knowledge that are created and shared about drugs so that's That's a great
0: definition
1: that's so great (laughs) (laughs) a little bit wordy but i you know i don't know that's how i describe it when i'm feeling that's kind of how
0: it always goes Mm -hmm. whenever you get into something like when you need to get into specific ideas it's always just like you got to use either a lot of words or words people aren't gonna understand and you can't do both yeah (laughs) that's one of the favorite my favorite well, well, yeah, for everyone listening, <clears throat> Justin is out in the middle of the woods right now uh, using a Star <laughs> internet because he is off grid. <laughs> there you Oops, are. I just cut out there.
3: <laughs> what were you saying? I was going to say, that's one of my, my favorite things about your book so far is you're very focused on the use of language around this stuff. And you've kind of, I can't remember how you started it. There was a, a term around this like pharmacological determinism. determinism. Yeah. And you've kind of said, yeah, that's a great word, uh, but there's better words and you've kind of concisely shortening it and you get to drugism, which is basically the title <laughs> of your blog. In your and your book and it's I think a perfect word for what this is all about yeah totally so, yeah, um, yeah
1: you you hit the nail on the head there and yeah so um pharmacological determinism which might just sound like a bunch of spaghetti to most people which is totally understandable essentially it describes a deterministic approach to pharmacology now pharmacology is the science of how drugs work in the human body and determinism is the belief that everything in the material world has an identifiable cause and effect and that one one thing inevitably leads to another thing, which then leads to another thing, and that this process underlies our experience in the world. Seems pretty basic, but a lot of philosophers and scientists have questioned the deterministic worldview. And um, I believe it was Hamilton Morris who used the term uh, pharmacological determinism among a handful of others. I, I don't I don't think he, he coined it, but um, it came into use maybe like five or 10 years ago, and he's used it on a podcast. And he used the term to discuss this assumption that a lot of people have that specific drugs produce specific effects. Like if you smoke weed, you'll feel warm and fuzzy and giggle. If you drink coffee, you'll get wired and you'll want to work. If you drink alcohol, you'll feel really loose and want to have fun and maybe feel tired. You know, and there's all these things that are very basic assumptions about how drugs work that are built into a lot of our conversations around them. But at their core level, they, a lot of them just quite simply aren't true or they're only true sometimes. And the opposite things are also true. And when Hamilton Morris and others have used the, the term pharmacological determinism to describe this, I think what they're talking about is very important for people to understand, even if we're not experts, even just like lay people who just like getting high and have never read a book about this, but want to be able to talk about it with their friends and family. But I don't think that, uh, however, what is that pharmacological determinism, 11 syllables, it's a little bit much to be dropping at like the family dinner or in between hits of a blunt with your friends or whatever
0: absolutely i really love how you break everything down because i think there is like i was just like talking about that that barrier between like when we use this type of academic language like pharmacological determinism like people don't know what that means and like trying to break that down to where it's accessible and everyone can be like oh this is what we're talking about when you talk about these really heady ideas and that's how we kind of gatekeep them through only politicians being able to have these little spheres of knowledge that they gatekeep who has access to and who doesn't. And I think that's something that you do very well in your work is like breaking down those those barriers.
2: Yeah, because the the alternative is like an oversimplification of what's going on because everything is so complicated that it does require a term that you have to then like define yeah. into 20 other terms and <laughs> and break it right. down into like a bunch of stuff. So I think yeah. that that's, that's really important and cool. Right,
1: yeah. So what Justin pointed out is the term drugism is more short, more simple. I think it's easier to understand when you hear it, like what it means. And it can refer not only to pharmacological determinism, but to a whole host of other like belief systems attached to drugs. So in the introduction of my last book, as Justin was describing, I explain what is drugism and uh, how I define it, although this doesn't have to be the definition, but I define it as the plethora of biased judgments that people hold about drugs and those who use them. And can apply to every single drug out there. And it actually is so widely applicable that part of what I talk about in my book is that drugism actually affects things that much of the public does not even identify
0: as drugs. Right, like salt and sugar.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: These are all deeply fascinating thoughts and like truly prior to this conversation had not considered the implications of like, oh yeah I definitely have like propaganda based, socialization based biases against certain drugs. Even in terms of like how it's evolving now and I think we can see that even more like acutely in terms of like the way fentanyl has been described in the last two years in the general yeah or xylazine
3: or PCP Absolutely. even or datura like these plants right they're they're all drugs they're all psychoactive and you know sometimes we talk about these things like they're okay and sometimes we talk about them like it's the worst thing ever and mm-hmm. and what exactly is the difference right where is that line drawn where one thing is good and one thing is bad all of a sudden right. it's yeah. really interesting
2: that was something I noticed when I first started going out with this harm reduction org and visiting encampments. And, and talking with people who use drugs and inject drugs that are unhoused is that they are like some of the smartest people that I've ever met. Like, <laughs> And not only that, but they're just so supportive of each other. And I, I couldn't even count the amount of times that I've heard a story about somebody who was overdosing and they would just shout Narcan. And it's, it's a rush to whoever can find their dose first. And whoever can is the person who goes and runs and does it. And it, it's just like the idea idea around like the communities of people who use drugs and are unhoused is that it's like a everyone out for yourself, like screw anyone over for a buck kind of mentality. And in actuality, they're just finding as clever a ways as they can to survive. And truly almost like nobody in the world has the capability to do what they do, <laughs> and like be able to to survive and like thrive in some conditions the way that they do. So yeah, it's definitely like that was something I I even realized it's like a like subconscious bias when I like first went out there where I was like I've been writing about this for a long time and I I never even thought about like how dumb my views of like what these communities are like is.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I mean that brings up a, a couple things. One is that drugism like really at its core is about people. It really is. A, a description of how people use drugs to signify their problems with other people. And because we know it's it's rude to point fingers at each other directly, a lot of people will point fingers to various little things in the room to project their anxieties onto those things. But at the core, a, a lot of what this boils down to is how do people relate to people? The other thing that, that that brought up for me is the drugism within the common discourse is so pronounced that if you say anything that tends to uh go against the consensus drugism you will basically be rejected so it's like unless what you are saying matches with everybody else's biases they will assume that you are wrong that's how heavily the drugism affects our public discourse and this has even been noted like i think this was noted by uh, a scholar of drug use who did some pretty important stuff i write about him in the introduction he was a sociologist in chicago I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head because the, this de grand,
3: the, the grand Prix,
1: not the Grand Prix, although he writes about it too. He's the dude who was writing in the 60s. He wrote some pretty foundational work about is that like Cook marijuana.
3: Mordecai? No,
1: fuck. Ah, I'm, I'm just off. looking
3: at the intro here. Try to speak. William Dufty, not Dufty. Not Dufty. Okay. <laughs> this is a great ad for the book, Ka- Kamiensky. <laughs> Not <laughs> Kamiansky. These are all
1: great people that we can talk about, but it was this, this is intro. all just in the intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, the
3: intro alone is has a lot of a lot of info. It's already got me thinking about a lot of things.
1: Well, I'll I'll get back to you on his name, and I'll I'll even I'll toss you all the citation I'm thinking of because. This person wrote in the 60s that when someone makes a statement about drugs, they are constrained by the scientific and the popular consensus. And what he meant is like, if you say anything that is not supported by the most recent science or the most recent article in The New York Times, that that people, again, they will assume that you're wrong. And it's it's not that the scientific process is that there's anything wrong with it. But if you actually ask a a professional scientist in the field will tell you that like the job of a scientist is to disprove fact. Like the whole scientific process is about discovering the truth and then discovering that that truth was wrong because you discover new truths. And the whole field rests upon the assumption that we don't actually know the truth. And yet so often in in public conversation, it's like, well, I didn't see a study from Imperial College by Robin Carter. Harris that confirmed what you just said about shrooms so you must be wrong and we're gonna move on and only do you know oh but this you know I read that in a Yale press release so I'm gonna yes this sounds true and people don't even know that they're doing this which is weird because like what I think another thing that a lot of people who were born and raised in the US don't realize is like how hyper focused our society is on drugs you know like if you go to Asia I don't want to speak for them but culturally the meaning of drugs in China is totally different than it is here in the U.S. And it's ultimately much less important in their culture. A- anyway, this is something I could go on about for hours. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the point I'm trying to make is that we, we all are so thoroughly indoctrinated with the drugism that we were raised with that it doesn't even occur to us to question it, which I guess is really just to confirm what Roe said. I will find the name of that scholar and get back to you, though. I feel really bad for... It's, he's, there's probably some other some people out there who are listening who know this guy. He's a really important drug associate sociologist from Chicago in the sixties who wrote
0: some really important stuff about like Yeah, movies. like tweet at us or something. Tell us who this is. I'll
3: tweet it out. Yeah. Is I'll, it Saz? Saz? No, Let but Saz is that's another bad. good one. Saz is
1: a genius. <laughs> yeah. He well, he was articulating all this same stuff in the early 70s, okay. and he's a trained psychiatrist, so he's another good one to look at if what we're saying is, is resonating. See, that's what's wild, is even though it sounds so fresh and new to be talking about this, there have been people talking about this forever, and that actually gets to something that James and I were discussing before the call, which is um, historical amnesia. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with the concept. no, please explain. So, amnesia is when an individual either forgets or just does not even form a memory of an event and historical amnesia is a term for the collective process of amnesia where um a because we didn't actually experience the history that happened prior to our birth we on a very basic level we don't know that it happened we only know what we've been taught so even though there's so much history out there we can only be taught so much you know but historical amnesia refers to this process on a population-wide level where for example our generation i don't want to assume but I'm guessing we're all millennials, right? Yeah, that's right. Or Gen Z, maybe millennials. Yeah,
0: on the border. That's cool. Yeah, somewhere on the middle there.
1: (laughs) We literally did not experience the 60s. You know, it's cool to think that we know, you know, oh, yeah, like maybe my uncle was ahead and I've read books about it and I listened to the Grateful Dead. Yeah, but you don't actually you weren't there. You don't actually understand what it was to actually be alive in that period, as much as we would like to think that we could from reading books about it. So as the consequence of that and i'm not trying to put down anybody individually there because that's a weakness that we all have you know i'm obsessed with that period and i wasn't alive there so i had to go through my own process of historical amnesia where i was taught certain things about these drugs and and their history And then I realized that there was so much more out there that I was not taught. And it's not that the history never happened or even that it was never documented. All this stuff happened and it was documented, but we just don't talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, we don't know about it. And that's basically what historical amnesia is, is we don't know the aspects of history that we don't talk about. So on a population-wide level, we collectively forget like some of the most important parts of our own history. And that's another big theme of my own work is I really try to go back with a microscope really look at every single speck of history that I can find about all of these drugs and just totally throw out my preconceived biases about what is important and what is not important and just put everything under the the microscope and examine all this stuff that and it, it turns out there's so much out there that is just absolutely it's mind-blowing and we don't talk about it and because we don't talk about it we don't know
2: I would love to hear some examples. Yeah, especially because like what you're saying about where we're at is not really different from where we've been is something that I've I've been kind of realizing a lot, especially with like extreme actors in the space. And like we think like, oh, Jordan Peterson's talking about conversion therapy. That's wild that like someone would think they could do that with psychedelics. And it's like actually like a lot of your heroes talked about it at one point. <laughs> and that's, that's something that is like kind of hitting me is that a lot of the negative stuff that we're experiencing now is stuff that we could have learned lessons from in the past so what you know what kind of lessons do you feel like we're we're really missing out on with that amnesia oh yeah
1: um and it- yeah so one i think probably one of the biggest ones in in terms both of its importance but also just the total lack of discussion about it is the history of salt taxes and this might sound totally just random and boring it's like salt are you kidding we eat that with every single meal what could possibly be be interesting about that and how does that have anything to do with drugs but uh, oh it's just crazy so what I found when I and this actually was all instigated by a really heavy trip by the way on some albino penis envies and some cacao beans that I took love it a discovery
2: of, that starts with a trip
1: oh yeah it was it was one of the best it was one of the best most most impactful trips that I have had, and I've had plenty of them. So that, you know, but anyway, yeah, I'll just cut to the chase with the salt. I could explain how the mushrooms taught me all this, but I'll save that, you know. The point here is salt. So this mushroom trip really made me curious to learn more about salt. And as I began to study it, I realized, actually, I learned. I didn't just realize. I learned from the history books. Salt was among the very first items to ever be taxed by a government. And that was in ancient China in the year 2000. So 4,000 years ago, the Chinese empire was already taxing salt. Do you know why they
3: were taxing it?
1: Well, that is the subject of much debate. And I write about that a lot in the first chapter. But what is interesting is that there's a common misconception that we need salt to live. And it's so common that if you Google, like, do we need salt? There will be a website that says, like, yes, we need salt. But actually, clinically, we do not need salt. What we need is the sodium and the chlorine that are in salt, and which we can interesting-
3: get elsewhere, right? We can get.
1: Precisely. So, if an organism obtains a sufficient amount of sodium or chlorine from non salt sources, they actually can survive and thrive without salt. And so, to get back to the point of historical amnesia, prior to the colonization of the world by European powers, there were populations of indigenous people in this hemisphere that did not eat salt. And they would obtain their sodium and chlorine from game and vegetables or all sorts of other ways to get it. And some of them would actually even use salt, but only sparingly as a medicine, basically. Now, this was not across the board. What is interesting here is the largest and most advanced populations in this hemisphere were using salt. The Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas they were all using salt but there were smaller populations of I- indigenous people and it, it actually is documented to the extent that we do still know the specific names of these populations I list them all in the book I wish I knew them off the top of my head I, I don't I should but there are
0: that's a lot of knowledge to keep in your head there's there's a reason there's a book <laughs> right but
1: the indigenous knowledge is important to keep that's part of what I get into with the historical amnesia is the fact that mm-hmm. we don't even know the. and I, I could pull out the book but the point that I'm getting at here is there were populations that did not eat salt and there were populations that would only use salt as a drug for example if you apply salt to a wound it will actually pull the toxins out of the, the blood and this has to do with the chemical structure of the salt and the effect that it has on the molecules in your tissues and all this kind of stuff it's like how salt will dehydrate water and all this kind of stuff
0: and it's interesting the phrase is now used as like a bad thing like pouring salt or rubbing salt in a wound is like not a good thing
1: right well and what's interesting is that used to be a medicine actually Actually. And so as to Justin's question about why did they tax salt? What's interesting is that evolutionarily speaking, if one examines the function that salt plays in our life from like an anthropological perspective, if we don't eat salt, then we have to spend a lot of the day either scavenging or producing food that will provide the sodium and the chlorine. But as soon as we're introduced to salt, we are given a molecule that we can eat in a split second that will give us a day's worth of sodium and chlorine, and we can go about our business. And this gets to the core of what a drug is okay so it's important to reemphasize that we don't need salt to survive okay but from a very early point in our history we were all taught to use it and what happens when you take a non-salt using population and you give them salt they're like oh my gosh this feels great this is amazing let's keep using this i would love to see a study where they do a brain scan of people the instant that salt hits their tongue because i would bet it looks a lot like when someone takes a hit of cocaine but i don't know if that research has been done yet. But when a population is introduced to salt, very soon they all begin eating salt every day. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, like we all know if you take an unsalted food item and a salted food item, the salted food item is going to taste better and you're going to want to eat it sooner for most people because our taste is adapted to a salt heavy diet, but it does not need to be. So why would they do the salt tax? It's a key part of history that we are not taught about in schools. And it is absolutely found foundational to the history of the war on drugs which i'll get to but it first happened in china and then it happened in ancient rome and then after the fall of rome the various kingdoms in europe learned that rome had taxed their salt so they began to do it and the salt tax it was one of the most reliable streams of revenue for any empire and it it spread across the world and the ottoman empire had a salt tax now what's interesting is most of the salt taxes in history the laws were written in such a way where if you obtained your salt from a non-taxed source Of course the illicit
0: salt market
1: exactly the illicit salt market and i just want to pause on that because it's like that goes back to the historical amnesia you know like a lot of people don't even know that there was an illicit salt market all over the world for hundreds of years prior to the war on drugs and what's interesting is that a lot of the gangs that used to traffic the illicit salt actually turned into the drug trafficking gangs like in china it was the red gang and the green gang who they used to traffic untaxed salt and wheat along the east coast of china and into hong kong and macau and then when opium was banned they added opium to the mix and they became the biggest opium trafficking gangs in Asia for like a hundred years, and then they have roots in like the triads and all this kind of stuff. But there was an illegal salt trade in most of the the major empires in history all over the world, and if people were found with untaxed salt, often they would be arrested and in many cases incarcerated. And if they were found, for example, to be trafficking untaxed salt, they would be incarcerated and put into forced labor. Now, does any of this sound familiar? At all, like,
2: no, I don't think so. I don't, (laughs) Uh, it's not ringing a bell yet.
1: (laughs) But what's wild is that this was happening all over the world, and now the war on drugs has direct roots in the salt taxes of history. Where I we can point to specific examples in France, okay? Um, so France actually had one of the worst salt taxes in history, it was called the gabelle it lasted for hundreds of years, and it is widely cited by historians as one of the factors that led to the French Revolution. Okay,
2: so, so salt led to the French Revolution
1: in part. It wasn't. It wasn't the only factor. <laughs> yeah, the, and again, this gets back to our discussion about how a lot of the, the biases about drugs are actually biases of people against people. What the Gabell was was class warfare, and mm-hmm. what the French Crown. So they were one of the places where, for example, if you were found dealing salt, mm-hmm. they would lock you up and put you into forced labor. And in France, under the Gabell, they created what was called, and then I'm not. Gonna going to say it in French because I don't know the correct accent, but it was called uh, the Gabelou, which was like the, the police of the Gabel. So it was basically salt cops. OK, so <laughs> <laughs> in France for a long time, there was a special department of police whose job it was to go around and check if anyone had untaxed salt. And if they did, they would be arrested. And if people were trafficking salt, they would be put into forced labor. And the punishment, I believe, if one was found in the, in the Gabel to be trafficked, Trafficking salt without a license, like untaxed salt, and in possession of a weapon. I believe the punishment was the death penalty, which it sounds it's very similar today, how it's like, oh, the police arrested a fentanyl kingpin who is responsible for a bunch of overdoses. And now the jury is debating whether they want to put him on death row or whatever. And like this the basic structure of this has been going on like for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So I think the history of the salt tax is key and especially for people who are into drug because I think we will find a lot of our big questions about the war on drugs will have answers in the history of the salt tax but so, yeah so anyway.
3: yeah like what what kind of like lessons could we learn like I mean that that being part of the amnesia like I, I hadn't okay, heard yeah. about that and I can see obvious parallels between I mean they've been right. arresting people for yeah. holding okay, white so, powder for hundreds of years by the sounds of it
1: exactly so what can we learn from that one lesson is that when salt became affordable enough that the tax that was raised on it was no longer well there's there's many layers to this particular part of the history but generally people are no longer busted for trafficking salt there might be occasional exceptions with organized crime syndicates that specialize in like fraud who maybe salt will be one of a bunch of products that they do but it's not exactly like there are rings of like salt dealers being busted by salt cops and stuff One key factor that allowed us to get to that position is the salt industry was 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 developed and regulated to the point that salt was affordable and safe for the entire population. So you well, we
0: meant it was a systemic change that made things
1: better. <laughs> right. Right. I just can't
2: <laughs> believe that it wasn't the punishment that didn't do it. We
1: That's had to a, go through I'm a, joking. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> it's crazy because actually you're onto something there, which is it's not like the politicians just woke up one day and realized, you know, this salt tax has to go. How we got there, and this is another key theme of my work, is like anytime that we leak. Legalize one behavior, we want it to solve all of our problems. And what tends to happen is it solves a lot of problems, but then a lot of the problems just tend to be pushed into other areas. So I, I know you meant that as a joke, but you're onto something because with the salt tax, like the process that it, it took for us to get from locking people up in prison for pushing salt to like now anybody can buy a pound of salt for like a dollar at the grocery store is the salt tax actually evolved into the war on drugs. So it, the mechanism for class Warfare was maintained, but just in a different form. Okay. You know when
0: they stopped taxing salt? Like when you said the French Revolution, but. Well,
1: it's interesting because the official date, I want to say, is around like World War II, but it had already reached a point of affordability probably by like the 1800s, like in between maybe the first and the second or the second and third industrial revolution, was when salt became cheap enough for everyone to use that it was no longer a political issue. But immediately the same class tension were projected onto drugs. Now, what's interesting is I found in my research, there's a direct historical link from the Gabel to the war on drugs in that a lot of the heroin in the global market comes from an area known as the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia. The Golden Triangle consists of an area that is the overlap between Myanmar, Thailand, Laos. It's to the east of India, south of China. And in addition to the Middle East, like the Afghanistan area, it has been like one of the primary opium producing regions of the world for hundreds of years and much of that region like vietnam for example was actually colonized by the french and it was colonized by the by the french while the gabelle was still in effect so when the french arrived in southeast asia and began to colonize what's now vietnam and laos and stuff they instituted the salt tax there and because opium was one of the biggest of the cash crops in that region they added the opium into the salt tax wow and the british did this in india as well okay so 10 years before the british east india company began to traffic in opium they actually had instituted a salt monopoly in india and both the british and the french when they began to control the opium trade in asia they used the structure of the salt tax to organize the bureaucracy for it so like for the british it was it was like here let me pull out the book because i don't want to say the wrong thing Uh, It was the the. uh... (laughs) It's just it's so mind blowing. I don't want to say the wrong thing and mess up the fact. Okay, here in India when the british when they decided to add the opium to their tax control system that they w- were implementing they had already had a salt tax there for a good 10 years or so and the salt and the opium were controlled in india by the board of customs salt and opium that was no. literally the, the obvious of that that's wow
2: it. that's amazing yeah
1: i mean it's literally in the same breath like that's so wild it was it was the customs, acronym salt and opium yeah and then if you look in the french history there are uh like recordings of conversations between the French colonists and the businessmen when they're deciding how to develop in Vietnam. And in the 1800s, they were talking about we can use the tax revenue from the salt and the opium to build the railway there and then we can use the railway to carry in all of our products and stuff like that so the 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 business people and essentially the colonists who were monopolizing the opium trade in asia that would then be weaponized against that population they were talking about salt and opium like in the same breath like the same offices were controlling them same tax laws and then again we go directly from like the european colonization of the op- opium trade into the opium wars and then the earliest of the modern prohibitions on opium and then the war on drugs. And it's like a domino. It's like, you can see the chain of events. And, but a lot of the drug scholars, they tend to stop at the opium. Maybe they'll go back and see how like tea was part of this, but I wanted to go back all the way to the beginning of history. And I found it actually all begins with salt.
3: There's an interesting shift in like the mindset behind this, right? Because so when they started the salt tax, it was for profit, right? Yeah. Something everybody needs. We can put a little bit of tax on everything. And and then basically every food that's sold, we're making some money. Yeah. And then opium, the same thing. Yeah. So then what changed uh, that kind of philosophy where then it became, we declare war against this thing. And not only are we not making tax money on it, we're going to spend trillions of dollars trying to stop it. You know, where yeah. did that kind of shift happen? Okay. Well, it seems
0: like it, control, right? Like that, yeah. that. Well,
1: there's, there's, yeah, I mean, yes, the control. So there's kind of like, in my mind, at least there's two key factors that gave rise to what Justin was pointing to. One is the the control factor, like Roe said, which is under the salt tax, like before drugs were ever added to the mix, there was already a... So this may have been one detail I didn't mention, which is actually pretty important. But in a lot of the empires throughout the world, the tax on the salt was actually expensive for the working class. So for the rich people, it was like a small fee. But for people who were working 12 hours a day or more, because this is again, like we're talking hundreds of years ago, before modern labor laws you know like we're talking extremely poor working people who would make up a huge part of the population of these empires straight up just could not afford the salt tax but the government instead of making salt more affordable they would put together like salt cops and salt task force like task forces to bust the poor people instead of just like giving them a safe supply of salt you know right so there's one layer where like this has already been happening now if, if you really want to get deep i mean this actually goes back to ancient greece i mean like aristotle in politics writes if a tyrant wants to maintain their control on a population they should prohibit everything that is likely to produce a high spirit and camaraderie so like a high spirit and camaraderie that's literally that could be anything it could be booze could be weed it could be sugar could be opium could be tea coffee and what's wild is that a lot of these things have actually gone through these processes but there's another there's a very specific point in history which to go back to justin's question that I just want to add here, which is uh, what I have found to be absolutely key to the development of the war on drugs that is not often talked about. Now, this is it's it's discussed among like the really academic crowd if you actually go back and read the books about the history of the war on drugs a lot of them will touch on this and in the beginning but i think a lot of us don't realize just quite how important it was which is the modern war on drugs is a direct consequence of the economic relationship between china and the west in the 1800s and like it's easy to be like okay that was 200 years ago snooze whatever but it was this is seriously so so important to the whole thing that I do really think it's worth emphasizing and I'll break down just real quick how this all happened which is um there was already an opium market in China when the British arrived in India and began to monopolize the opium trade now I'll keep it real brief here because I know it's it's a lot of history but it's actually not that complicated if we keep our mind on the fact that it really is about how people treat o- o- other people okay and how drugs are used as a tool in this process okay so what happened when the europeans began to arrive in asia is they discovered what was one of the most advanced empires or two of the most advanced empires in the world which were china and, and india which while europe was in the dark ages china was was kicking butt they were literally on top of the world the biggest population in the world the wealthiest population in the world the biggest trade market just were them and uh, the the kingdoms in west africa were the two biggest and most powerful kingdoms in the world for hundreds of years and when when the Europeans got to China, they discovered a lot of things that just blew their little minds. And among them was tea. Tea was one of the first things that um, the English missionaries that had traveled to China about five or 600 years ago, they found tea and they absolutely fell in love with it and they brought some tea back to Europe. And now at the time, a, most of Europe was drinking alcohol on a, a pretty regular basis because a lot of the water sources in Europe were messed up. There's a whole lot there that we could get into, but I'll right, spare so that-
3: alcohol kind of cleaned the water for them it allowed them to drink it right
1: right now it also got them drunk if they drank too much and why tea was so you could almost say revolutionary in europe was that it gave them a beverage that didn't get them drunk but it gave them a a buzz and but what's interesting is that when tea was introduced into europe there was actually initially a backlash against it because it was this new weird drug from the foreigners that we don't use and we don't want any of that here don't bring that stuff from them over here we're good with our whatever kind of wine or beer they were drinking so there was initially a backlash against tea but people very quickly got over that when they started to drink it and what happened is that england actually proceeded to deplete their supply of silver on tea from china and this was hundreds of years ago so it was before the modern credit systems and at the time gold and silver were absolutely foundational to trade and a nation had to have a sufficient supply of both gold and silver on hand to be able to participate in the world market. And China had already figured this out because they had already maintained a working currency for hundreds of years. They had already been through a shortage of silver like well before that. And in China, they had a policy of making sure to collect silver for the state because they didn't want to lose their silver. And they, they knew that they needed that to pay taxes and to maintain their own trade. But the Europeans hadn't learned that yet. So when the Europeans got hooked on tea, they began to spend all their silver on tea and China was smart enough to ask for the silver. They were like, that silver that you have, that's what we want. They didn't really want much else that the Europeans had because there wasn't really much else in Europe at the time. I mean, we didn't have a lot to produce. And what we did, pro- what they did produce, I don't know why I said we there. I'm not in Europe. Um, <laughs> but they, they didn't have much to offer to world trade in, in Europe. But one thing they did have was the silver. And China wanted the silver so they could expand their own markets. So they specifically asked for the silver in exchange for the tea. And this, of course, went like right over the English people's heads. They didn't care about the silver. It would be another couple hundred years before they figured out capitalism and stuff, which arguably they figured out by trying to mimic the Chinese. But that's a whole other discussion. But after England had depleted their silver supply on tea in China, they realized that they were in trouble. And because now they didn't have any silver and they could hardly participate in world trade. And they realized, oh, we just spent all our silver on this tea from China. And that actually coincided with the uh, American revolution and the loss of British control of the colonies, which it's a double whammy for the British because they lost control of their colonies and they realized that they had just lost their silver to China pretty much within the same time span. And it was in response to this that they began to colonize Asia and that they began to monopolize what was one of the biggest cash crops in Asia already, which was opium. And they had finally figured out that they needed the silver to be able to participate in world trade. So what the British did as they began to monopolize the opium in asia is they made sure to request that it only be paid for in silver because the whole point was that they wanted to get the silver back that was one of the the main objectives in the british colonization of asia was to get their wealth back and they were they were worried about the loss of control of what's now the us so of course china was already hip to the fact that they needed to keep their eyes on their silver so when the british came along and and began to try to bully their way into the opium trade in asia and demand that it only be bought with silver the chinese were smart enough to realize what the british were trying to do here which was that they were trying to get their silver back and because china was already a more advanced market than us they were not trying to have that they were like no thank you like we already did that business the tea is yours the silver is ours we have a huge population to maintain and a lot of the the earliest laws against the opium trade in china came into being specifically because of the concern for silver because in china also the taxes were paid in silver so if the population spent all their silver on the, the opium from the British, then there wouldn't be any silver left to pay the taxes to the Chinese state. And the Chinese politicians knew this because they had already done this to England with the tea. So they could see what the British were doing, which this right here is really one of the key reasons for the war on drugs, which is that it wasn't really about the opium. It was the fact that the opium was the industry that the British had chosen to get their silver supply back. But the Chinese prohibited the import of opium from the British. And those were some of the first of the modern ban on opium they really didn't even have a problem with opium at first they just had a problem with spending the chinese money on the british opium so a lot of the earliest laws that would later turn into the war on drugs it was really a financial matter because they needed the silver to pay their taxes and And so
0: i'm like going to that historical amnesia idea of like now we've been so separated from that past from this really complex and nuanced history about salt and opium Yeah, And now we get to put different reasons onto why we yes. don't like drugs anymore. Yes. Like the, the quote from uh, the Nixon aide, who's like, we yeah. couldn't make it illegal to be against the war, or be black. Yes. So we yes. made these things illegal. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, arguably even that, which that that quote is from John Ehrlichman, who was an advisor to Nixon, who was in the room and when a lot of Nixon's key decisions were made, I would argue that that quote from Ehrlichman is actually like a perfect example of the Aristotle quote from politics, where he says, for a tyrant to maintain their power, they can prohibit things that produce a high spirit and camaraderie. The the anti-war crowd and the black power crowd were getting high and getting and getting together. And the drugs were an easy way that they could be targeted. And that's what crazy is that the Ehrlichman quote sounds like it's like like the fact that we can trace this back to Nixon is like whoa that's some history but actually this goes back to Aristotle and this is not even anything like new at all
2: I just want to point out that one of the things that Ehrlichman said that I think especially points to that relation is he said you can arrest their leaders and disrupt their communities um, mm-hmm. as like a specific reason behind it and I've I've always thought that that was really interesting but you know you said like we think we can trace it back to Nixon I was I was thinking actually earlier, like I guess I've kind of always thought of this start of prohibition as being our prohibition of alcohol and it's it's like wild to think that we were already so entrenched in the war on drugs when we prohibited alcohol even that yeah, exactly. it was like already it, right. it was we already didn't even know why we were doing it or what we were doing <laughs> <laughs> or even like the fact that cannabis is called
0: marijuana to like give it anti-latin sentiment right yeah, right. yeah that one too yeah and
1: although marijuana itself is a term from mexican communities and there are there have been mexican scholars that have essentially pointed to that the term can be used in an empowering way as well so because it was used applied to cannabis prior to the whole harry anslinger era but yeah there's there's a lot to all that but yeah um to james's point about like the alcohol prohibition um you absolutely are onto something there a lot of people and because we aren't really taught this i mean like we're taught about that in school but we aren't taught about how this plays into class politics that tie back to ancient empires and all this kind of stuff now what's interesting is a lot of the early movement for the prohibition of alcohol actually came from the missionaries and one reason why the missionaries were among the first adopters of this idea is that and this it's so interesting here right because it all actually does tie back to like the opium trade and all that kind of stuff the the missionaries from europe and china were interested in aligning themselves with china because their whole purpose was to ingratiate themselves into Chinese culture in order to build a bridge between China and the West. So a lot of the missionaries in China would actually adopt what we would call like the politically correct take on things from the Chinese perspective with like zeal, because they wanted to prove that they were allies of China so that the Chinese would trust them and that they could then, you know, share the Christianity and the Western business and all this kind of stuff. So there's this really like nuanced give and take there going on. And because the missionary communities wanted, to ally themselves with the power structures in China they were some of the loudest proponents for the prohibition of opium in like not only in China but in in the west and I would argue that the alcohol prohibition is in in many ways a reaction to the politics of the opium laws among the missionaries because there already was this kind of idea that like the the Puritan like worldview could be harmonized with the Chinese worldview in a way that would be good for both business classes and you know it, it gets really deep there, but you're absolutely correct. When the alcohol prohibition was being developed, it was already in the context of the international opium politics and stuff. So, I mean, they're even in ancient Greece... There was a ban on wine for the poor people. It was called the Locrian code. I forget exactly which era of ancient Greece it was in effect, but there were laws where it was basically like, look, if you're in debt or poor or working, these drinks are not for you. Like these drinks are only for us and us being the people who are writing the laws, you know? So anyway, even the theme of alcohol prohibition, like that's, are we ever taught that there was alcohol prohibition in ancient Greece? Like, no, I didn't know that until like a year ago, you know, like-
2: right. Well, I was also like thinking, you know, in terms of like another kind of thing that this is really kind of blowing my mind about is that I've always kind of thought of like prohibition as being like just the banning of drugs, but it extends so far beyond that because taxation is a form of it too. And like what you're talking about with the salt tax being prohibitively expensive for the poor is like exactly what we're doing with cigarettes right now, where like the only people who are affected by it are the people who are addicted to them and like can't afford them. And so they're they're, like getting like screwed over a lot. More than anyone else.
1: Yeah. And there are people being busted
0: for carrying and selling untaxed cigarettes and stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: No, totally. Um, yeah. I think something
0: that's really cool about the term historical amnesia is very much in the like implied violence of it because amnesia is not a passive thing that happens. It's a thing that only occurs through like a traumatic event or through like either through like a physical trauma or through like a suppression. And so this idea that like historical amnesia is an active process of revision, like historical revision revisionism almost but to the point where the old gets completely forgotten in favor of the narrative that has replaced it
1: yeah no totally and i mean there's just a lot there i mean it's kind of like how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go
0: you know
3: i guess to summarize this and also just to kind of make sure i'm on the same same track here like we started here with the salt tax which started in like china or somewhere around there right yeah and that was mostly like a money-making sort of venture um which then the british sort of adopted and also applied to their opium trade which they kind of had going on yeah Yeah. and then it kind of Kind of shifted at that point when now it was britain that sort of stood to make the most money from it mm-hmm. so china started to like prohibit it basically yes and then at what point did that then sort of transfer back to britain who was making money from this industry right they're not gonna prohibit something that's making all their money that's a great question okay so how this all turned
1: back onto us is china is and has always been the biggest population on earth and as such for any capitalist class, they represent the most highly valuable market. So how the politics of opium in China got bounced back onto us is a little over 100 years ago in the early 1900s. It actually began in the end of the 1800s, but it really only got finalized in the 1900s around like 1906 with the conference at Shanghai between China and the West, where the Qing Empire had actually closed off trade to the West after the opium War. They were like, you know what? You violated our trust. We just don't want anything to do with you. We're big enough that we don't need you. So bye. And that was like one of the key motives behind the earliest prohibitions of opium in China. But now, it was
0: framed as like these opium dens were ruining the morality of the people. Well, or at least that's, that's how, how I, I learned it.
1: That's how we learned it, exactly. So, well, so, what's okay. yeah, well, okay, so what's interesting, right? Is like in China at the time, there was actually a conflict going on between the aristocracy and the rising business class okay so china at the time was known as the Qing empire which actually was an imperial dynasty that had like a crown and uh what we would recognize as an aristocratic imperial political structure now as i have been been mentioning throughout um the market in china has already been very advanced and as such the merchant class in china has had a distinctive type of power and this was being negotiated in the chinese culture in the same period that the Europeans were trying to monopolize the opium and get their silver. So how this turned into, oh, it's the opium dens, and if you smoke opium, it means that you're like a lazy bum and you're no good for our society, and that's why we needed to ban this, right? It turns out that was actually more or less constructed as a political argument by the business class. So the business class could see that the opium trade was bad for China's financials ultimately this is because the the merchant class had more at stake in the financials of the empire and you would think that the aristocracy would be more concerned about the money but the thing is a lot of that was passed on through bloodlines and laws and the power was so built in that the people at the top of the power structures didn't worry that they were going to lose power and they had begun to be so enthralled by the luxuries afforded by china that what the merchant class was arguing that there was a political Weakness that was occurring in the ruling class in China, and they tied the opium into this as a way to kind of create a political argument to empower themselves. Now, because the aristocracy in China was so wealthy and their power was so guaranteed that they didn't really need to work to keep their power, they could kind of just chill all day and spend their money on all these luxuries. Opium use was very prevalent among the ruling class in China. Now, the opium use itself, arguably, it was just one of many. I mean, they also were drinking tea they were they were doing a whole bunch of things it's a
0: vice we We have vices
1: yeah and i wouldn't even say it's a vice because it has medicinal qualities and a lot of them were using it you know for all kinds of like medical reasons and stuff but opium happened to be like one of the biggest cash crops in india where the brits were monopolizing it was easy for them to pick the opium trade to monopolize and that's a key reason it's like it wasn't that like oh like we know that opium is extra habit forming so we're gonna sell all that to try to take over china although that has been an image that has been projected onto the British in hindsight because this image of dependency has been attached to opium. But if you think about it, the whole reason that any of this even started to begin with is because of the British love of tea, you know? So like, if we're really talking about like habit-forming drugs that drive entire nations to financial destitution... We should be talking about tea. Tea is really what got us <laughs> here, you know? And the tea trade, the rise of the tea trade was facilitated by a change in the structure of the salt taxes. And that's a whole other thing I could get into, but I'll spare you, you know? But to tie it back to, because Justin asked a really good point, which is like, how does all of this, like, how did all of this turn into the modern war on drugs though, okay? So we're going to like fast forward into the present, okay? So, and I just want to say, you all are asking amazing questions, top shelf questions. This is absolutely killer conversation. Like, and I shouldn't say killer, that's like... Not a good word this is absolutely <laughs> conversation this is this is awesome but anyway to fast forward into the now right because a lot of our listeners out there might be like Ay, ay, yeah, salt taxes opium wars what's going on all right so when the when china banned the opium trade so that they could keep their silver the british instead of complying and just figuring out a different way to obtain their silver they kind of just buckled down on the opium trade and they didn't care that the chinese had banned it because they still had ships and they still owned the opium fields and they still had connects with all the chinese Chinese business people. And there's various regions of China that were um, hubs for the opium trade that now happen to be hubs for various illicit
2: activities.
1: Real quick, yeah. can I
2: just interject and have you just kind of go over the opium wars? Because I think we've mentioned it a couple of times, but not really covered exactly what it is.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So the, the British essentially didn't want to comply with the Chinese bans on the opium. So they kept selling their opium to the Chinese. And the Chinese kept buying it because the key logic of banning a drug, as we know, just doesn't work. Like you can tell people not to take a drug all day long. If anything, it's just going to make more people take the drug. It resulted in war uh, twice because uh, China and the Brits essentially had to resort to military force to try to control each other's either participation or not participation in this trade. So twice in the 1800s, it erupted into a full scale war. The first was in the late 1830s. The other one was in the late 1850s. Actually, interestingly, around the same time as the U.S. Civil War. But that's a whole other thing. But so anyway, the opium wars were fought between the British and China for control of the opium trade because it was still so lucrative that even though the Chinese had banned it, there was still such a huge demand for it that the British could still make their money on it. So they still had an interest in doing it. So how this got bounced back onto us, right, is for a long time, China had just totally closed off all of the legal trade with the western powers like the british and the u.s but around the early 1900s a little over 100 years ago they renegotiated this because arguably there was a lot that they could benefit from from trading with the west and as the terms for trading with the western imperial powers china asked that we control our opium trade and that we actually do it this time and that those conversations happened in shanghai in 1906 and at a another convention that happened a couple years later and they resulted in the first international treaties to control the opium trade that were then passed in china and in most of the major western powers that were doing trade on the world market and that was the beginning of like the modern controls on opium so how that turned into the war on drugs that we know it where it's like really gnarly and the cops are beating people and there's this whole idea that if you take drugs it somehow is like you have failed and there's a problem right a lot of that was was generated to essentially justify the crackdown on the opium trade, which, again, was only done at the behest of China. Why?
3: Sort of a trade deal, kind of. It
1: was literally a trade deal, straight up a trade deal between China and the Western business powers. Uh, it, It went down in Shanghai at the Shanghai Convention. Like, you can still read the documents about it there's books that have been written about this and stuff
0: translates to today to like the having the illicit like heroin market but then yes. also like 90 of our generic uh, opioids coming from china yes. and india
3: 100 percent, 100 yeah it's kind so, of like uh one of the opening lines of your book is like it's never prohibition is never about the pharmacology right this is why a lot of the drugs that are schedule one like lsd say or psilocybin there's not actually any sort of toxicity with those it's not about people getting addicted to lsd or there's there's a lot more sort of social political stuff going on in the background like the you're saying i guess the the original uh kind of prohibition at least in like the united states and in the british colonies is uh a trade deal with china and then it kind of seems like they kind of they did that and that worked and that was and after a few years they they also kind of realized hey we can use this uh, in another way as well. And, and, and it's,
2: yeah, I, th- I think it was, um, I think it was Dr. Carl Hart who said something about how like everyone thinks that the war on drugs is a failure, but it's not, it's succeeding in exactly what it's supposed to. Exactly. I'm yeah.
1: so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> totally.
2: Yeah. And the I think, talk- I think that's just like, that's a, a big, um, a big thing that people don't realize is losing a loved one to overdose. Like I've, I've got, uh, family members who have struggled with like, Opioid dependency and it's like completely ruined their lives. And, and, you know, there are two ways you could look at that. You could either say, okay, well, going to jail once makes your life infinitely harder forever. And so, like, by merely getting arrested a single time, you're already like in a nosedive that you have to pull up from. The other way of looking at it is like, this drug ruined this person's life. And I think that the second way is a lot easier <laughs> for a lot of people. Like, it's easier to pick a single sub- substance and demonize it and say like we gotta get rid of it but it's like I I feel like that's like the societal understanding of everything and then the higher level political understanding of everything is total classism oppression and control and we're just kind of playing right into their motives and giving them praise thinking that they're reaching ours and (laughs) (laughs) and it's just not about that.
1: Yeah totally. You made an excellent point about how it's easier to blame the drugs than to look at the other factors. That is so important. What's weird about it is it's easier like not only for people in positions of authority, but it's also easier for us, like people who use illegal drugs, who have been arrested, who have been marginalized because of our drug use. It's easier to blame the drugs and be like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm a junkie, so of course I'm going to of course it's going to be like this." And it's like I understand that and like I myself also played into that for a long time, but I think we're underestimating our own power and our own agency when we do that
2: i just can't believe like i because you've released a few substacks now on salt or yeah yeah yeah. and i I know that I've, i've read through at least one of them and like hearing hearing just the whole the whole story of it it's just it's wild to hear um start to finish and i i think another thing i'm connecting and and i might be wrong on this but um britain's depletion of silver from their acquisition of opium also seems Seems like it probably led to the American Revolution in a way since heavy taxation was like a driving force.
1: Okay, so, oh, I am, that is excellent question. And I am so glad that you brought that up. Totally. So one of them, okay, so like we all learned about the Boston Tea Party in school, hopefully, maybe, right? Okay, where a bunch of the colonists in what is now the US in Boston, like got together and tossed a bunch of tea into the water because they were upset about the tax policy that the British crown had set. Now, that's pretty much as as much as a lot of us know about it, which is fine. You know, I get it. It It's a long time ago. We learned about it in like fourth grade or whatever. That's cool. But it actually directly applies to drug politics because what the colonists were protesting in the Boston Tea Party, which was one of the events that is often interpreted as sparking the American Revolution, is the tea in the colonies was primarily controlled and distributed by the British East India Company, which was the exact same institution that was monopolizing the opium in India because they were just like the preliminary trade group they were contractors to the British crown and they had they were dabbling in all the different trades and stuff. So tea and the revolution and the British, right? So what had happened is the British crown had said that the British East India Company did not need to pay taxes on tea that they sold to the colonies. But all the colonists would still have to pay an import duty on it if we wanted to buy tea. And we just wanted the same right that the company had, which is not to pay taxes on our own products that we're purchasing and that our taxes are already paying for their, their production. And so the, the main motive behind the Boston Tea Party was to protest a tax that the British East India Company had been exempt from paying on tea. Now, we don't think of tea as a drug, but it totally is like it meets every definition easily. It's 100% a drug. Arguably, it's the drug that kicked off all of this in more ways than, than one. But um, what's interesting is that if you look at the flag of the British East India Company, it is a bunch of horizontal red and white stripes with the British flag imposed on the upper left corner. Now, when the colonists here were agitating for independence from the crown, they adopted their own flag. And because they wanted to have the same taxation rights as the British East India Company, they adopted the flag.
2: Wow. But instead of
1: having the British flag in the upper left corner, they had one star for each of the colonies. And what's really wild is that the pattern of the horizontal red and white stripes was actually stolen from the flag of the Majapahit Empire, which was the empire in what is now indonesia which was being colonized by the british at the time so the american flag is like a stolen twice (laughs) stolen twice and it's stolen in the context of what i would argue is like a drug war
0: Oh my God,
2: this has been incredible. I've learned so much.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for having
2: me on, Vincent. This is like incredible. I I literally think that you're doing something nobody else is that I've seen in the industry right now. And your your knowledge of drug history is like literally unmatched. I'm just every time you release a substack, I'm astounded. And like we had we had a phone call a while ago, and it was like everything you told me. I was like, holy shit. And and I'm like that today too. Um so thank you so much for for coming on and telling us all about salt and how we forget about all of the terrible things that we do. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Well,
1: I've had a blast and I want to thank all of you as well for being absolutely great hosts and for for giving me the space to explain all this all this wild stuff. Even yeah. the
3: intro alone has been extremely dense with information and <laughs> you know we we've covered the salt but the chapter after that is sugar, very yeah. similar and then it starts getting into the like DMT and Academy And there's a, there's a lot of information here. I recommend everybody listening to this. Give it a read. Thank you. Thank Definitely.
2: you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tripsitter podcast. Don't forget to check out Vincent's other work in his wildly in-depth book, Drugism. At Tripsitter, we depend on the support of our fans. If you'd like to help contribute to the work we're doing, head over to tripsitter.substack.com where you can subscribe to receive even more premium content. Want to show support without a monetary requirement? Like and share this podcast and give us a rating. It really does help boost our listenership and would mean a lot to us. We also offer a free subscription to our Substack and we're on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky if you need some more high quality drug content. Remember, no drug is inherently good or bad. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist in the world. It's our relationship to them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Until next time, have a great trip.